0: I want to use our time tonight really to address an issue that has been on my mind for some time now, and you heard me mention a little bit of it at our budget meeting that we had uh, just recently, Um, and really has been brought to the forefront of my mind through this whole area of missions, or really the gospel, and what is the gospel, and sharing the gospel. And of course, Reggie spoke about sharing the gospel tonight. And of course, we have been studying through the gospel of John over the last several years, and we are here in John chapter 19 on the death of Jesus Christ. And last time we were here, we we closed our time together uh, several weeks ago in verse 30, John 19 and verse 30. And from that, we were mentioning some of the theological truths that are contained within the final words of Jesus Christ. Of course, John records it here for us in verse 30. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Of course, we dove into that pool of theological truth and realize that when Jesus said it is finished, he was certainly meaning more than just the events of the day or even the events of the week that culminate in this very moment, his own death. Jesus means more when he says it is finished than the, the resolution to the fact that all things in this moment are done and therefore I'll finally die. Of course, what is included in those words is much more than that, and they include all of the spiritual blessings that are for each and every Christian, so that when Jesus says it is finished, when reality, all that culminates in that is every blessing that we have in Christ. We know it very well as being summed up in the Great way that Paul does in the book of Ephesians to the believers, as he writes to them in chapter one, when he says to the Christian that the Christian has every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's how he begins Ephesians 1 and verse 3. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he says, even as He chose us in Him, talking about God, choosing us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Paul goes on to say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, in love, He, that is God, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He says in verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. He continues in verse 11, in him, we have obtained an inheritance who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I mean, that is a a passage that we as Christians sit in and should revel in that. All that we have been given in Jesus Christ. These are all grand and glorious truths that we have as Christians And yet with all of that, over the centuries, within evangelicalism, within the church, there has been still confusion in answering this most basic question. And it's the title of my message tonight, For Whom Did Christ Die? In other words... The question is framed like this. Did he die for all of humanity? In other words, all human beings without exception. Did he die for all humanity and thus all are saved? Or did he die for all humanity, but for whatever reason, Not all people are saved, or did he die only for certain people without distinction? In other words, some from every tribe and tongue and nation, all of which are saved in reality. These are the only three options that can be contemplated when we talk about what is included here in John 19 and verse 30, and this issue that we know to be the atonement. The satisfactory sacrifice of Jesus Christ as a covering for sin. These are the only three options that can be contemplated, and each one of those causes our own minds, if we're thinking about it, if we're Thinking through what each one of those questions is saying, it causes our mind to be stretched. It causes our thinking to be squeezed. And therefore, many people have chosen just not to deal with it. Just to throw their hands up and go, Well, I don't know. I don't even want to think about it. But we can't do that. We can't do that. Why? Because we're all compelled and commanded to give the gospel. And so as Christians, we have to deal with the death of Christ. We preach Christ crucified. This is what the gospel is. We preach this and the death of Christ includes the atonement. And so we have to deal with the atonement. And so when we listen to the words of Christ from the cross, when he says, it is finished, we have to ask, if the atonement is included in that statement, which it is, then first, what was the atonement? What was the atonement? If it's included in this, what was it? In other words, was the atonement the payment of the price for the sins of some people, without distinction. Let me say that again, because I'm going to stretch our thinking here, and I want you to stick with me. Was the atonement the payment of the price for the sins of some, without exception, some people, or without distinction? Or was the atonement the payment of all people, without exception? Was the atonement the payment for sin of some without distinction, or was it the payment for all people for sin without exception? And then subsequently, was that payment actual, or was it potential? In other words, when Christ died, did He actually in that moment pay for the sins of whoever it is, some or all, or... When he died, was it a potential? Did his death and atonement simply fill up a bucket of potential appeasement? That's the question. That's what we're asking. In other words, if the payment was actual, if the payment that Christ made on the cross was an actual payment, then it pays for the sins of all who were included under it. Right? Regardless of who it is, whether it's some or whether it's all inclusively, it covers them all, whatever group that is. But if it was potential only, then it only makes the payment for sin possible. In other words, if Christ's death was potential to have our sins paid for, then it only makes the payment of sin possible, and therefore salvation is only possible rather than actual when Christ died. In other words, as I have said already, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? Was it all people or just some? And therefore, what kind of atonement was accomplished through the death of Christ? This is what we're dealing with when we think about the atonement in Scripture. Now, the Gospel of John gives us testimony that seems to limit the extent of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. You say, how so? Well, for example, in John chapter 10, go back there for a moment. We'll turn to a few passages tonight. There's no way that we can cover all of the passages that we need to in reference to this or that we could, I should say, in reference to this whole argumentation. But in John chapter 10, Jesus says, and this is John's gospel, which seems to use language that limit the the scope of the atonement. John says in Jesus' words in chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, notice, for the sheep for the sheep. That seems to be language that is limiting. In other words, it's not language that is all-inclusive. It is language that seems to be limiting kind of language. And so right here in John's gospel, we get from the Lord himself what sounds like language that is not universal language. In other words, Christ is saying, I die, I lay down my life, not in a universal sense for all things, but for my sheep, for the sheep. And you say, well, okay, I see that in, in some sense there, Pastor, but, but can, you, can you make that a little more clear? Well, just a few verses later, Jesus clearly excludes some of those who are right there listening to him from the group that he has just called sheep. The group for which he is going to lay down his life. Notice what he says in verse 26 You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. So, right there, Jesus is now making a differentiation. I lay down my life for the sheep. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep. Now, we also understand that John uses words in his gospel that seem to indicate that Jesus died for the whole world, or Jesus died for all men, or Jesus died for all. We cannot simply overlook that. We cannot just look here at John 10 and say, well, here it's clear from Jesus' words that there's a limiting reality to the atonement. We cannot simply do that because it's not just in John's gospel. The terms of the whole world or all or all of us. In fact, it's in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 to be exact very somber text that we know because we think about it often when it comes to the death of Jesus Christ, a text prophesying about the death of Jesus. And verse 6 of Isaiah 53, verse 6 and following says this, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, get this, of us all. You read that passage and you say, Well, doesn't that imply that at least at the very least, he died for all sin? Or maybe you think in your mind of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, where Jesus, or where the writer of Hebrews says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death. For who? For everyone, it says. Well, that doesn't make the answer any easier. That even confounds it a little more. Doesn't that also imply that he died for all sin? Or maybe, maybe you even go to the Apostle John again in his first epistle. First John chapter 2. I preached through 1 John some time ago, 1 John chapter 2. The Apostle John says he is the propitiation. Propitiation means the atoning sacrifice, the satisfactory sacrifice, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice. He is the atonement. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Checkmate, pastor. That should clinch it, right? Right? I mean, don't these verses clearly show that Jesus died for all sin? Not necessarily. We have to say that. We have to say not necessarily if we're thinking about the Scriptures, because when we look carefully at the whole of Scripture you quickly notice that the Bible continually uses terms like world and terms like all, terms like everyone, terms like all of us, the whole world, in ways that clearly do not mean the idea of without exception or clearly do not mean a universal reality to them. For example, The word world is used sometimes in the scriptures, particularly in Psalms, to describe the whole earth as a physical reality. Psalm 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Clearly, in Psalm twenty-four, one, the word world there being translated from the Hebrew is, is translated that way in describing the physical reality of the earth, the whole world. In fact, I would even say it's even more than that. It's all of creation, all of the planets, the whole universe, all the created reality that God has created and all of us who dwell in it. Sometimes It refers only to the uniformed or the unformed creation, I should say, rather than the physical reality, the unformed creation. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you did give birth to the earth and the world. Uh, The psalmist is, is thinking back to the time when the earth was formless and void, back in Genesis. It was a created reality, and yet God hadn't shaped it into the very reality that we know. And yet the psalmist uses the term world to describe it. Certainly there are places where it does refer to all of humanity. Some of you might be thinking of our study of Romans, Romans chapter 3 and verse 6. For otherwise, how will God judge the world, it says. Speaking of all of humanity, all of humanity is under the judgment of God. Or verse 19 of Romans chapter 3, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Obviously speaking about sinners, all sinners, without exception. But at other times, it only is referring to a large group. In fact, we'll just walk through these really quickly. There's only four that I want to give us. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 7. Jesus says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Jesus isn't necessarily speaking of the physical world, he isn't necessarily speaking of everything in the world or every person in the world, but woe to the world, woe to the large group of humanity because of the stumbling blocks. For it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. Not every one of us faces that reality in that way, and so Jesus isn't talking in a universal sense. He's talking in a a more limited sense, and yet he uses the term world to describe that. Again, over in John's Gospel, in John chapter 4, when we were looking at the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4 and verse 42. Remember, Jesus had gone and met this woman at the well, and then she goes... Tells everybody, testifying what Jesus had told her. And the Samaritans begin to believe her. And the Samaritans come out to question Jesus. And when they questioned him, verse 41 says, And many more believed because of his words. And they were saying to the woman, notice, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know this one is indeed the Savior of the world. They certainly don't mean an inclusiveness of everything universally. They're simply talking about themselves. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, chapter 4 and verse 9, speaking of his own apostleship, not wanting to even defend himself, he says, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. And notice who the world is that he's talking about. Notice how that word is described, both to angels and to men. So there, Paul is using the term world, and yet it it includes more than just our world. It includes even the angelic being. Then, of course, when you go to the final book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 13, we get this idea again. And again, I'm just trying to give us a kind of a smattering of verses throughout Scripture from Old Testament to New that speak to the reality that these terms that appear to be universal in Scripture oftentimes aren't as universal as we seem to think they are. Revelation chapter 13 Verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, talking about the beast of the sea, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, and they worshiped the dragon. Well, certainly that's not including everybody, because there are some, even during the tribulation time, as we have seen through our study of Revelation, that don't follow the beast. So there's a limiting aspect even there, even though he says the whole earth. Well, there's a whole host of other passages that we could turn to in our time tonight. And when you look at them, you come away with a, a greater understanding that most of the time when the word world is being used, it is not being used in a universal way. Most of the time, the word world is used it's used in an aspect whereby it is limited in some kind of way in fact that is even how the pharisees use the word in John chapter 12 back to John chapter 12 just to show you one more verse here's the pharisees in verse 19 They're very disgusted with what Jesus is doing. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. They don't like what he's doing. They don't like the fact that people are listening to him. And in verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, if we can, if we're using that in a universal sense, then we would have to include the Pharisees were part of that. And yet they're not going after him. So they certainly did not mean every person on the earth universally was going after Jesus. They didn't even mean every person within the confines of the nation of Israel as it was at that time. They certainly didn't mean themselves. They only meant that a large group of people were going after Jesus. So we can look at the scriptures and see these terms, but we cannot insist that these terms, world and all and all of us and everyone and every person, we cannot insist that they mean a universal sense, that every person is included in that in any kind of way. Or we're going to have trouble explaining even from John chapter 12, if that's the case, why didn't the Pharisees go? So the point that I'm trying to make, at least on, on or right out of the gate here tonight, is this. The use of the words like world, when you come across those in scriptures, the use of the words like all men or all of us, do not necessarily mean all without exception. In other words, they do not necessarily carry a universal aspect to them. Each one of them has to be read in the context that it is placed. In the way that the author intended it to be used, or we are going to go astray, particularly in our understanding of the atonement. And the implications of that understanding of the atonement. We're going to go astray in that if we think that the words world, all all of us are universal. And so it's my contention that when you look at Isaiah 53 that I showed us earlier, when you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, when you look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, these these passages that seem to indicate by which Jesus died for the sins of all men in some kind of way, it becomes clear that each of those passages are speaking about the people whom God has chosen to redeem. In other words, those that he chose to redeem without distinction. In other words, all of those within that group, some from every tongue, some from every tribe, some from every nation, both Jews and Gentiles. So with that in mind, I want to return to our initial question that I asked us tonight. With that idea in our mind that that those terms can't mean universal in every way and every time we read them. With that in our mind, I I want to ask the question another way. I want to ask it this way. Did Christ's death actually atone for the sins of anyone? Let me say that again. Did Christ's death actually atone for the sins of anyone? I'm emphasizing the word actually. Okay, Keep that in your mind. In other words, did it actually propitiate the wrath of God on any specific people? Did the death of Christ, did it actually turn away the wrath of God on any specific people? Maybe we should ask it this way. Did it reconcile anyone to God? And if it did, then for whom did it do that for? You see, when we think of it that way, there are only three possible answers to that question. When we ask the question in that way, did it actually atone for the sins of anyone? There are only three possible answers. Either Christ's death when Christ said, it is finished, and he died, either his death was not an actual atoning sacrifice, but rather it was only one that made atonement possible. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, his death didn't accomplish anything. It only made the accomplishment possible. It only made the appeasement of wrath possible. And thereby, in that it becomes actual when in fact the sinner repents of sin and believes upon Jesus. You understand what I'm saying when I ask that question? Now, did Christ actually propitiate, or did Christ actually reconcile, or did Christ in his death actually atone for the sins of anyone? You can only ask that, you can only answer that question this way if Christ's death was not an actual atonement, in other words, if it didn't actually accomplish something at the moment it happened for the person on which atonement is to take place, i.e. sinners like you and me, if it was not actual and it only made atonement possible, then it has to become actual when someone repents. Or secondly, Christ's death was an actual atonement for the sins of God's chosen people. And the result is that each and every one of them is actually saved. Either it's not actual and only makes atonement possible and thereby becomes effectual when you believe or Christ's death was actual. It was actual for the sins of God's chosen people. And the result is that each and every one of them is saved. Or, there's a third option. Christ's death was an actual atonement for the sins of all humans. Therefore, all people are saved. Those are the only three options. Either it was not actual and it only made atonement possible and becomes effectual when you believe, or Christ's death is actual, and it's actually paid and appeased the wrath of God for God's chosen people, and therefore all those are saved, or it was actual in atoning for the death of all sin, of all humanity, and therefore all humanity is saved. Those are your only three options. When you think about the atonement of Jesus Christ, those are the only options you have. It's either actual in its accomplishment or it's not. And if it's actual, then whom did it save? Did it save all people? Or does it only save God's chosen people? I think it's pretty easy that we can scratch off number three from that list, can't we? that the atonement is actual for all the sins of all humanity, and therefore all are saved, right? Because if Christ's atonement accomplishes something, and if He died for the sins of all humanity, therefore it accomplished the appeasement of the wrath of God for all humanity, and therefore the only thing that outcome of that reality is that all people are saved because they have nothing to pay for. Their sins are paid. Well, we know that can't be true. The Bible clearly teaches that not all humans are saved. In fact, there are example after example after example throughout the entire Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh was just one example. Pharaoh was under the wrath of God severely in the plagues. He did not believe in God. He did not believe God unto salvation at all. And we certainly know when you come to the New Testament that Judas was not saved. So therefore, if number three is too true, those two people somehow missed the boat. They slipped through. And the words of Jesus Christ, that those whom the Father has given me, I've lost none, are not true. Because Jesus paid for the sins of two people that he lost. Number three can't be true. So if Christ's death was an actual atonement for all sin, Judas would have to be saved. We certainly know he's not saved. So that only leaves us with one in numbers one and two as options. Either Christ's death was not an actual atonement, it was only something that made atonement possible, and thereby becomes actual when a sinner repents and believes upon Jesus, or it was an actual atonement for the sins of God's chosen people, and the result of that is that each and every one of them is, in fact, saved. Well, we can't go to every passage concerning that issue in our time tonight, but you guys can come to Monday night because we're going to deal with this over time as we go on on our Monday night group. But just to say this, when the Bible speaks about the death of Jesus and when Jesus spoke of his death, it was in terms that identified it as an actual substitutionary sacrifice in other words, the Bible speaks of those terms that we have in Christ in Philippians chapter 1, forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption and and the sealed by the Holy Spirit, all of these things, and the terminology that Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 and 30 speak of, justification and sanctification and glorification and, and these Grand theological terms, when it speaks about these things and the death of Jesus Christ, it speaks of them in terms of an actual substitutionary sacrifice that actually reconciles and redeems. In other words, when redemption is spoken of in the scriptures, it is spoken of in terms not of potentiality, but in terms of Actuality. In other words, when Christ redeems, it's an actual reality, not something potential that's waiting for you. It's not something that is possible to the one being redeemed after the price is paid. It is always actual. In other words, when you trace the the idea of redemption in the Old Testament, and we looked at this last time we were together as men in the Monday night group, this whole issue of redemption and how it's used in Scripture, the buying back terminology. When it's used through the nation of Israel, there was never a sense in which when someone paid the price to redeem, that it was a potential Redemption. That it just waited for the person who was being redeemed to respond to that price that was paid in order that they might walk away free. No, their redemption was bought. It was an actual buying of their redemption. The person who was redeemed was actually free. They were no longer a slave. They were free from the debt. Why? Because the debt wasn't potentially paid. The debt was actually paid. So Jesus did not come to make reconciliation possible. He did not come to make redemption possible. Jesus did not come to make propitiation possible. No, he came so that through his death, all of those truths, all of those things that we've even mentioned here tonight, were actually accomplished and completed for those whom he died the deacons have been reading over the last several months a book that i gave them some time ago on this subject called redemption accomplished and applied by john murray paperback if you want to read it want to see what the guys are reading please Pick yourself up a copy. John Murray says this in that book, quote, the very nature of Christ's mission and accomplishment is involved in this question. Did Christ come to make the salvation of all men possible to remove obstacles that stood in the way of salvation and merely make provision for salvation? Or Did he come to secure that salvation of all those who are ordained to eternal life? You see what he's asking? Did Christ come in order to make it possible for some to be saved? Or did he come to actually accomplish salvation for those who are ordained unto eternal life? Did he come, he says, to make men redeemable? Or did he come effectually and infallibly to redeem? John Murray goes on to say the doctrine of the atonement must be radically revised if, as atonement, it applies to all those who finally perish as well as to those who who are the heirs of eternal life. In that, even we should have to dilute the grand categories in terms of which the Scripture defines the atonement and deprive them of their most precious import and glory. He says this we cannot do. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying if the doctrine of atonement includes all people and some are saved and some go to hell, then we have to refine exactly what atonement means according to the terms of Scripture and how they share themselves to mean. In other words, atonement has to mean something else. It can't possibly be an accomplished fact if it's a a fact for all people. Because we know that it is true that some people and their sin is not atoned for. Judas's sin is not atoned for. Pharaoh's sin is not atoned for. Countless millions throughout the ages have had their sin not atoned for. They are now in an eternity of hell. In fact, Luke chapter 16, the rich man of Lazarus clearly shows that not all people sin are atoned for because the rich man is in the fires of hell and Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. Murray says we cannot, we cannot revise it. Why? Because the saving efficacy of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, And redemption is too deeply embedded in these concepts. And we cannot eliminate this efficacy. We do well just to ponder the words of our Lord Himself. Here's what He said, John 6, 38 and 39. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And what's that? This is the will of Him who sent me, that of everything which He has given to me, I should lose nothing. Nothing but should raise it up on the last day. Everything that the Father gave me, I lose nothing. Well, where does that put the words of Jesus Christ, if his atonement paid for the sin of all people of all time? You see, beloved, there is an absolute security in Christ's redemptive accomplishment. When we read John 30 or John 19 verse 30, there is a redemptive accomplishment that is absolute. That means that when he died, when he said it is finished and in time, this moment took place. He actually atoned only for the sins of, of those whom he had been given, which are the same as those whom he saves. He actually atoned only for those whom he actually and securely saves. Now, some of us may still be struggling with this, Because you were like me, or you are like what I used to be in my early days of my own Christianity and thinking about these things. Because like me in my early days, I would have said when God saved me and someone might have asked me the question, for whom did Christ die? I would have quickly and honestly said, God has chosen all men, but not all men choose God. God has chosen everybody, but not all men choose God. In other words, some refuse to believe the gospel. Some reject. And that is true. Some refuse to believe. That's true. Reggie preached the gospel to many people. We're not sure who will receive it and who won't. Some will reject Some rejected that night. Some refused to believe. But we have to say then that if Jesus died for all, if all are chosen, therefore Jesus died for all. If Jesus died for all, because that's what we must say if all are chosen, right? If Jesus died for all, then we have to also say that every sin has been paid for. Is the only logical reality. Because Jesus is sufficient, right? His death is sufficient. He died, Hebrews says, once for all, Hebrews 2.9. Then every sin is paid for if Jesus died for everybody universally. And if that is so, then we have to answer the question, why do people still go to hell for refusing to believe? Isn't unbelief just sin? Isn't unbelief just sin? Jesus said that to the Pharisees, you will die in your sins because you do not believe me. Unbelief is just sin. And since that is so, hasn't Jesus died? If he's died for all sins, hasn't he died for that sin also? If he died for that sin also, then aren't those people going to hell undeservedly? Aren't they going to hell and yet they don't deserve to go to hell because they're just simply not believing and Jesus died for that sin. So if Jesus died for all the sins of all time, then certainly unbelief was included in that. And if that's the case, then all must be saved if that's true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, as we've clearly seen in John chapter 10, that he has died only for his sheep. Only for his sheep. Only for his own, it says, his people and the many are His. That's what it says. The many. Those the Father gave Him. So it's an exclusive group. The Bible calls them the elect. The chosen before the foundation of the world. Those whom God calls to Himself. And He justifies them through the death of His Son, by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sin and only their sin. Without distinction, some from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And of all of those, he loses none. Of all of those, he loses none, not one. And so here we are as Christians, and we offer the gospel. We offer the power unto salvation. That is what it says in Romans, for it is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. And we offer it to everybody. Why? Well, first, because we're commanded to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light, right? Colossians tells us that. We are to go and proclaim the gospel, Matthew 28. We are to tell others of the good news. We are to go into all nations and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. This is what we are commanded to do as Christians. But secondly... Because the gospel, listen, and I I think we're confused about this sometimes in evangelicalism, the gospel is not something for people to politely, politely accept or reject. Let me say that again. We don't ask people to believe upon Jesus. We don't go to people and say, hey, you should believe upon Jesus. It's the right thing for you to do. We don't do that because the gospel is not a suggestion. The gospel is not something to say, hey, this would be good for you. No, the gospel, guess what it is? It is a command to obey. When we say believe upon Jesus Christ, that's not asking somebody to believe. That's the command of God. Believe what I said to you. Believe the truth about my son. Believe. Repent and believe. Believe. And so when someone rejects, it's just sinful disobedience to the command of God. I don't know whether a person is one of God's elect or not. Neither do you. But I do know this. If they will repent and believe, they will be saved. I do know that. And so we speak truth, as Reggie said. We speak truth. We don't proclaim to people the possibility of salvation. We don't proclaim that Jesus died and filled up this bucket, and God just willy-nilly ushers it out whenever somebody he looks down the annals of time and sees that somebody might come to a knowledge of him, and he goes, "Oh, okay, I'll spread a little over here." No, there's no possibility. We preach Christ. We preach him actually crucified for his people. Christ bought them. We were bought. We were purchased by his blood, and he reconciled us and he secured us. And so we tell people repent and believe. Don't wait. When you're standing with somebody, we say, don't wait. Don't wait and say, well, tomorrow I'll figure it out. No, don't wait. You're a sinner today. Come to Jesus. Believe. That's what we say. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. When Jesus Christ Hanging there between heaven and earth on the cross. And when he says, It is finished, he actually paid the sins, paid, appeased the wrath of God for the sins of all those whom God had given him to save. And he loses none, not one. And there is no one who will spend eternity in hell who's had their sins paid for but simply didn't have it applied to them because they refused to believe. No one. No one can snatch the ones God gave him out of his hand. Jesus said, the father is greater than all and I and the father are one. There are no exceptions. Well, I know that probably made your head spin a little bit and thinking about that. That's just the tip of the iceberg, really, uh, of this doctrine. This is the tip of the iceberg, really, of what your elders are being challenged with right now in reference to our own doctrinal statement, not because our doctrinal statement doesn't say anything about that in the sense of election and sanctification and propitiation and the death of Christ, but we want to make sure it's clear. So that when people say, we agree, we agree, particularly with our missionaries, we agree with you as a church. We want them to understand clearly what they agree with because it hasn't been so clear. And that's been revealed to us as of late. It's not so clear. And if you tell people that Christ died for all the people of the world, you're not preaching the gospel rightly. And so we can't tell people that. And so we want to ensure that us, as well as our missionaries, get the gospel right. So this is on our heart, it's on our mind. Pray for us, challenge yourself, think through it, ask us questions, cause us to go back to the word of God and be challenged there. Um, And we can lead you in direction of a lot of good material to read on it if you want more answers Anyway, let's pray tonight as we close. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this moment, really, in your word where we can be challenged with the truth of the atonement. Lord, it's not easy for us to grapple with. In our humanness, we oftentimes think, you think like us. And so how could a loving God send anybody to hell? And yet, really, that's our problem. We think you think like us. And your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. You're far above us. Now help us just embrace what who you are according to what your word teaches. Understand it for the truth that it is And not try to appease a conscience sometimes that cannot understand. Help us just rest in you and your sovereign hand in it all. We'll trust that when we speak the gospel, when we preach the truth, your word will never return void in accomplishing what you have set forth for it to do. All to your glory, all to your praise. And we'll trust you in that. In our Savior's name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.